0: In this episode we're going to talk about electrical storms, trekking poles, vapour barriers, how to keep important things attached to you but accessible. Can you dehydrate a curry and how do you know when to stop? Welcome, welcome to episode 31 of Ask Paul Kirtley. Now, I'm up in the northeast of England here. It's a sunny but breezy day, and hopefully the microphone doesn't pick up too much wind noise from the trees. It's actually really quite warm and humid today. I've got out of the sun, and I'm sitting under some mature, or relatively mature, Norway spruce tree. So there might be a bit of wind blowing through, and then we've got an oak over there, and we've got sycamore over there, and some ash. So there's quite a lot of leaves blowing around, but it's a lovely spot, and I thought this would be a really nice, just chilled spot to record an episode of Ask Paul Kirtley and it's been a while since the last one and I apologise for that, particularly to those of you who are purely podcast audio podcast listeners because there hasn't been anything on your feed for a while those of you who follow my blog and follow my youtube channel will have seen other things there have been other videos there have been other articles i've had on my main podcast as well i've had some excellent guests in in recent weeks so if you haven't checked out some of those things then please check those out as well we've had al humphreys on we've had lisa fenton on the podcast i've put um a few videos on my youtube channel that have been elsewhere but not on my youtube channel before particularly bushcraft show presentations and then in terms of what i've been up to just to bring you up to speed there was the bushcraft show at the end of may we've had courses Um, we've just been doing two wilderness expedition canoeing skills courses in the Lake District um, two weeks back to back that's been a lot of fun we had two great groups on that and people learnt a lot on those Um, really really good programs that Ray Goodwin and I have just run and I'm literally on my way back down to Sussex from there at the moment as I record this I just thought I'd stop off and and have a hike today Um, also Those of you that are deep into following my blog and on the email distribution will know that I've been trying to finish a big video uh, online learning project. And some of you have seen some of those videos and some of you are now beta testing that online course. And if you want to know more about that as and when it's finished, please get on my mailing list on my blog if you're not already. So there's tons of content out there Um, if you haven't seen all of those things there's lots and lots of stuff for you to to catch up on and if you have been keeping up with all of those things hopefully that's uh, kept you uh, kept your appetite sated in between it's been quite a gap between the last Aspal Kirtley and this one um I've got a ton of questions stacked up um, for the coming weeks and I will now try and crank through them. Thank you to everyone who has got in touch and asked if I've stopped doing them. No I haven't stopped doing them. Thank you to those who have got in touch and and been concerned that they've somehow asked the wrong question or why hasn't their question been featured. Um, That's always an issue. I get a lot of questions. I get more questions every single week than I can answer in a weekly show even when I do it weekly. to pick and choose try and choose questions that are of most use or of general interest or we just haven't even addressed anything to do with that subject before or go in more depth on a very popular subject if there are particular questions also some of you are super keen and you've answered um sorry you haven't answered you've asked questions for me to answer um, and you've sent in multiple questions I've got to give everybody a chance as well. So people like Issa, um, Dave Wellsby, Adrian Spring, I know I've got more questions from you to answer. I will get round to them at some point, I hope, but there's a bunch of other questions to answer as well. So I just try and mix up every session. So anyway, without further ado, that's a bit of an update for those of you um, who have been missing these shows without further ado we'll crack on with the questions and today we've got questions on trekking poles electrical storms vapor barriers keeping fire steels on lanyards effective bug repellents how do you know when to stop bow drilling and dehydrating meals so first question is from chris murphy and he's asking what my thoughts are on trekking poles do I ever use them um, He said he recently got a tarp and I'm thinking of getting poles so I can do more configurations in open terrain but I don't know whether or not to just keep them in my pack or use them for the hike too. I rarely see them used here in Northern Ireland. It may sound silly but I don't want to appear as that person by using them if you if you get what I'm, if you get what I mean I have gone for years without them are they useful or just gimmicky Thank you all the best Chris um okay cool well chris um they are useful um more so in steep terrain than on relatively flat terrain so you will see them used more where people are addressing steep terrain whether that's in the lake district i'm just thinking of where i've seen people use them recently lake district scotland trails in patagonia when i was in argentina last november and Generally, if people have some concerns about their knees, people will use them. People carrying heavy loads, people doing long distance backpacking. I know people who have adopted them wholesale just to protect their knees. It does allow more stability. It does allow some of the strain to be taken off your knees, particularly when you're going downhill on very uneven, rocky trails. I know Chris Townsend, Who was on my podcast my main podcast um, last year uh, podcast number eight i think it was he and i went out for a day hike um, and we talked about many things some of which we recorded and that formed podcast number eight and we talked about trekking poles and he uses them and he uses them a lot and he finds they really really protect his knees and he doesn't have the problems with his knees that he used to in terms of soreness and he's not old but he's older than me and he's still doing some significant hikes and he's protecting himself i've used them in the pyrenees and they were very useful there i don't tend to use them on day hikes because um, i like to um, video and photograph things and i find just all that clutter in my hands gets um, gets on my nerves frankly so i prefer to carry a camera in my hands uh, most of the time in winter i will carry an ice axe in the hills um, but i know some people also um, like to take trekking poles most of the year round any time of the year for me i like to use them in rough terrain In terms of using them for tarps, yes, um, I think in open country they make very good, useful tarp poles so that you can get your tarp up in a relatively open space and peg it down. Um, I've done that, it's useful. I wouldn't carry them just for that. If I was just looking to do that, I might look to try and find some sort of lighter telescopic poles because you've got the grip on there, you've got other um parts that make them robust they're more robust than they need to be to be tent poles or tarp poles but they lend themselves to that if you're carrying them anyway if you just want to take some small um, tent poles then maybe that would be the answer so yes they're useful i think they're most useful in steep rough terrain for many people and they are very useful for extending the use of your tarp as well so certainly worth looking into electrical storms this is a question from philip webb hi paul have you ever been caught out in a thunderstorm when walking in the hills or mountainous regions what is the best course of action one should take is it a good idea to ditch anything metallic as this may attract the lightning or erect an emergency shelter in the middle of nowhere or put my fears to one side as lightning strikes are rare It would be great to hear your thoughts on the subject. Thanks for the videos, all very informative. Philip Webb. All right, Phil. Well, I think the main thing, if we're talking about the hills, the main thing is if there are storms in the area is to get down off the high ground, the highest ground. You do not want to be the highest thing in an area where lightning might strike. that is the, that's the main thing. So get downhill um, and away from the ridges, away from the high points. And that could be a localized high point. You know, you don't have to be on the highest peak. You know, if you're in a large area and you're on the highest point in a valley and there are high mountains around, it's, you're still on the highest point. So get to a local low point, get down in a dip, get off a ridge, get down off a, off a local, know particularly in areas where there may have been glaciation you get all sorts of features and you can be in quite a large valley on a on a uh, on a local mound that is still quite high and exposed so i'd be getting down off anything that feels or looks exposed and down into a dip and just and just be waiting there for it to pass yes i've had to do that Um, the other places where you need to be concerned about lightning is if you're canoeing if you're out in the middle of a lake the lake is flat You might only be a few feet above it, but you are above that water and I wouldn't want to be in the middle of a lake in the middle of a thunderstorm either. Um, In terms of carrying metallic things, um, you don't want a big metal aerial sticking out the top of your rucksack, certainly, so things like trekking poles might be a bit of an issue. I'd have to do some research to see if there was any increased, you know, we just had a question about trekking poles. I'd have to do some research to see if there was any significantly increased chance or have there been any recorded cases of people being struck by lightning when they've been carrying trekking poles. Trekking poles are often made of aluminium um, or an aluminium alloy. Aluminium is very conductive, maybe, but I don't know. Um, I think the most important thing is to get down off the high points. you asked about shelters as well again yes you often get heavy rain um, associated with thunderstorms you might want to erect a shelter a tent or get into a group shelter to keep the rain off Um, again i would be doing that down in a dip where you've got a lot of ground around you that's higher that would be the thing that i would be doing Um, other than that that, that's the main, that, those are the main things to do. There's not a lot else you can do. And as you say, it's quite rare for p- to people to be struck by lightning. And we haven't talked about forests. Again, um, people worry about trees being struck. Um, you're more at risk if you're out in an open field and sat under the one or one of the few trees in that open area than you are if you're in a forest where there are hundreds of thousands of trees. I would be still sitting under some of the lower trees if you can get under you know if you can see there are big trees around and there are lower trees in that area get under the lower trees and away from the high trees because as trees are struck by lightning what happens is the sap in the trunk boils and the trees can explode and that sends out um, splinters of wood so stay away from high points ridges localized high points stay away from um, being the highest thing in a flat area whether that's a lake or a field stay away from high things in otherwise low points such as trees in fields and stay away from the tallest trees in the forest those are the sorts of precautions that you should be taking hopefully that's helpful because we're all going to come across some uh, some significant thunderstorms at some point if you spend enough time outdoors last year when we were running the blood vein river we had some tumultuous thunderstorms and lightning of the which i of the sort of, i've never seen before i've yet to I, I've, yet, I've got all the video footage but i've yet to turn that um, trip video into a video i'm going to do that later this year um, it's going to make a really great film um, the footage we got was fantastic and and um, one of the things, one of the features of last year's trip was a few days in the middle of the trip where we had some serious thunderstorms and rolling thunder through and lightning through the night and, and lightning strikes not far from where we were. And it's, it's frightening, but you just have to follow those precautions that I talked about and minimise the chances. Okay, this is a question from Fausto Momoli little plane, light aircraft going over there, behind. Um, And Fausto says, first of all, thank you for all the information online. You're very welcome, Fausto. Um, I really appreciate your methodology on the blog. Um, He's got some general comments, which I won't read out. They're just feedback on material, all good. Um, His questions are, he has two questions, cheeky, but I'll go for it. You offered some feedback and some thoughts which I appreciate, so I'll I'll entertain two questions. Um, What are your thoughts on vapor barrier liners? Recently I've been using both sock liners and sleeping bag liners that are supposed to work as vapor barrier liners and improve the effectiveness of winter clothing. But the thought of keeping my feet wet in those conditions, for instance, doesn't seem appealing to me. So that's the first question. And the second question is in one of your videos you mentioned that you attach your fire steel and pocket knife to a belt with a lanyard can you explain how you do it all the methods i could think of would either be cumbersome or would have very long and impractical lanyards again thanks for all your efforts in publishing this information cheers fausto well fausto first question vapor barrier liners i'm not a huge fan of vapor barrier liners they do work I have tried them up in the far north of Scandinavia in the winter. For those of you who are not familiar with vapor barrier liners, the idea is that you have basically a waterproof, um, we'll talk about feet for example. You've got waterproof socks on that are not breathable, um, but they stay warm even though they become wet. And also they're protected from outside uh, moisture if you stand in overflow water on top of ice, those sorts of things. Um, It works fine as long as you're not exposing your warm and wet feet to the cold at some point so that that does work personally I don't like it I don't like my feet getting into a condition like they've been in the bath all day um, so I prefer to use other solutions um, but it's worth bearing in mind if you get wet boots one of the really good ways of protecting yourself is to put on a pair of socks put, take a plastic bag And then put on another sock and you've got that vapor barrier that's in your footwear and it stops the water getting into your uh, inner sock and your onto your foot so the cold moisture from the outside is not penetrating and making everything wet and you've also got that warmth sealed in yes you're going to get a bit sweaty but it's more protective than just wearing two pairs of socks, particularly when your boots are sopping wet. So say you go through ice, even if it's up to your knees or you go into deep overflow water, basically what happens is you get ice, then you can get water between the snow and the ice for various reasons. And if you step into that, you can get wet boots. Even if your boots are waterproof, if it goes over the top, you're going to get water into your boots and you're going to have to change your inner in uh, liners, if you have spare liners, you have to change your socks, but you're still gonna have wet boots. And if you don't have dry um, liners for your boots, you're gonna have wet liners, you need to protect your feet. Carrying a couple of water, uh, just a couple of, of carrier bags, like shopping bags can be very useful for that. The other thing that I carry are some large, not, not the standard size, but some large um, breathable socks of the seal skin type that I can put thick socks inside and use them in a similar fashion. So I'll put dry, thick socks on and then I'll put the um, large uh, breathable waterproof socks on to keep that inner sock dry and then I'll put um, my my feet back into my my boot so that's on the vapour I don't like vapour barriers for sleeping in Um, you're gonna get damp I like sleeping in a thin merino layer that's what keeps me warm with a sleeping bag that's of the right temperature for sleeping outside the right rating for the temperature Um, anything that stops the moisture getting out of that is going to make your sleeping kit and make your um, thermals which you're generally wearing all the time you're not changing out of them helicopter going over lots of activity today I've seen quite a lot of military helicopters around today as well as military planes I think there's an exercise going on right well welcome back that helicopter's off in the distance now just to finish off on vapor barriers because i don't know if i if i finished my sentence um, I, i accept they work under certain circumstances on feet polythene bags on feet can work very well particularly with wet footwear in cold environments to protect you from cold injuries i don't like vapor barriers for clothing i don't like vapor barriers for sleeping systems i think you can effectively stay warm without trapping moisture into your into your clothing and I think there are some risks in in doing that particularly if you're wearing thermals you don't want too much moisture if you're sleeping out in a snow grey for example in a bivy out in the snow what you don't want is for all of the clothing that you're then going to put your outer layers over the top of for that clothing to be full of moisture you want to try and get as much moisture out of your sleeping kit as possible <laughs> and so I don't like it for sleeping um, the other part of the question was about fire steels and pocket knives on lanyards um, yes I do keep them on lanyards because then I'm less likely to lose them I'm sitting at the base of a tree now if I bring my legs up things can start to fall out of my pockets for example I don't want to be losing those most important uh, I don't want to be losing any equipment but I certainly don't want to be losing the most important things such as a knife and a fire steel so I do have them on lanyards in my pocket but Fausto is right if you've just got them tied on then using a knife on the end of a lanyard is either going to be restrictive or the lanyard's going to be very long and the same with a fire steel so the answer is clips some sort of clip that's secure but is easily unfastened so what I do with my fire steel is I just wrap the cord around um, I have a sturdy belt and I wrap the cord around my belt with a cow hitch and then on the end of that lanyard is a little clip um, of the sort that you get on some key rings and i have a key ring ring on my fire steel through the hole at the top of the fire steel and that just clips onto the clip at the end of the lanyard so it's securely fastened but then i can just unclip it and use it and then clip it back on and pop it in my pocket and the lanyard doesn't need to be too long With my pocket knife I do it slightly differently. I have a fixed lanyard on the knife and then what I do is I have a small carabiner which I pass my belt through so that is a fixed clip on my belt. I don't put it through a trouser loop because the trouser loop can be ripped off. I put my belt through the small carabiner and then I use that to clip the lanyard which is fixed with a double fisherman's knot through the loop. Uh, through the lanyard hole at the end of my uh, pocket knife and maybe I'll do a little separate video to show exactly how to do that but hopefully my description is sufficient for Fausto to understand but I, I, I think I'll make a note of doing that it's a good little quick tip video that I could do there of how to make sure that you've got those things on your person but without losing them okay thanks for the questions Fausto okay let's crack on next one bug repellent This is from Richard Tiley. Good to hear from you, Richard, it's been a while. And his question is, um, with bug season upon us, I was wondering what you would recommend as a truly effective bug repellent to steer away mosquitoes and midges. Thanks for your help, Richard. Well, Richard, um, the most effective bug repellent with most bugs, unless they've become accustomed to it, is DEET, and the stronger the DEET formula, the more effective it is. Um, You do need to be careful with DEET. You certainly don't want to be getting it in your eyes. It is toxic. You don't want to be getting it in your mouth. Um, And also there are various plastics certainly as well as coatings on leather and other things that you might be using in terms of clothing and equipment that will be damaged by DEET. So you do need to be careful um, of it from that perspective as well but that is the most effective one. Um, There are a number of natural repellents. I've used Nordic Summer which works pretty well against uh, midges, Um, it works well against mosquitoes and it works well against blackfly. But at the end of the day, if you're in an area where they are the biting insects, whether they are noceums, mosquitoes, black fly, if they're really, really of a sort of pestilent nature where they're absolutely unbearable, then what you need is at least a mosquito head net. Um, having some sort of brimmed hat, like a tilly hat or similar, a bush hat, to take that away from your face with a mosquito net over is handy because mosquitoes will bite you through mosquito netting if it's right next to your skin so you want it away and what i use in canada is a bug suit so it's a lightweight uh, polyester smock uh, with a hood that has a um, midge net a mosquito net on the front it's got very tight cuffs and then i also wear some leather gloves around camp or in say if i'm going into uh into a swampy area to get dead standing um, trees that have died because of the flooding. You can get some really good um, dead standing firewood in muskeg, bring that out. It's also gonna be full of biting insects. So uh, a bug suit and some leather gloves are really handy for that. Um, And as I say, I use Nordic summer most of the time, not just for health considerations. There's no proven link between DEET and health problems but it is toxic and also it damages your kit. So particularly if I'm using cameras and which are generally got plastic on them, you can damage camera lenses with DEET. I just try not to have DEET on my hands and DEET on my stuff because it causes problems with other things. And then I try and protect myself if I need to, midge net, bug net, bug suit, and use a repellent which is not gonna damage my kit, even though it might not be quite as effective on its own as 100% deep, for example. How do you know when to stop? Well, this is the second last question, so I'll be stopping soon. (laughs) But the question is not about stopping the show, the question is about stopping bow drill. And this is a question via Instagram from Chris Mernin. And Chris asks, how do you know when to stop? The hearth is billowing smoke and spewing dust like a volcano yet once i move the ember the bundle smokes briefly and stops this is a consistent problem for me any advice would be greatly appreciated cheers for all you're doing always enjoy your material chris well i'm just looking at the picture there your bow drill set doesn't look too bad there chris um a couple of things i would comment on though on this specific set and i don't know if this is general to every time you do it but i suspect it probably is most people get into habits of the way they do things the notch looks a bit small so you're probably pushing dust out of that notch um, and then it's and then it's falling apart and um, rather than collecting sufficient hot dust so that you consolidate an ember within that notch so you, your notch looks little bit small it doesn't go into the center of where you've drilled so you want it to go deeper in and you want it to be an eighth of that circle the reason it needs to be an eighth is not some mathematical um, black magic it's simply it needs to be big enough to collect the dust sufficient to have an ember but not so big that when you pull uh, back on the bow the spindle pops out you need enough material there to retain the spindle in the hole yet large enough notch to collect enough dust and an eighth is a good rule of thumb so an eighth of that circle that looks smaller in terms of angle and it's not as deep into the hole into the area that you're drilling as i would like and so the amount of dust that you're collecting in that wedge is quite small yes you're you're creating a lot of dust but most of that is away from the um away from the hearth and the other thing there is that what you're collecting the um, dust on doesn't look really big enough to collect all the dust you've got dust coming off the side it looks like a slither of wood that you've got under there you're on wet sand that moisture in the wet sand in this particular instance is not going to help you want something that's going to protect all of the dust that you're generating from the moisture underneath so that you can pick it up off the ground when you've finished so eighth of a circle into the center. Generate enough dust, have a large enough ember catcher, an ember pan, little carved piece of wood or a thick enough piece of birch bark or other bark underneath that's dry. It's gonna protect it from moisture that you can then lift up and away from the ground, get it away from that layer of moisture that's near to the ground and then allow that to consolidate. You might need to waft it a little bit and then you can take that consolidated ember into your tinder bundle. Now the tinder bundle is another question if you're not taking the ember into flame via the tinder bundle, it could be that the ember is not big enough in the first place for the reasons we've talked about. That, that I think, is a significant likelihood given what I've looked at here. So a bigger ember or a more consolidated ember will allow more chance of lighting. You also need as fine a tinder bundle as possible. If you're not getting enough fine fibrous material in contact with that ember in the first place, then that's also likely to to fizzle out in the centre. It'll burn a small amount of the material away. There's not enough heat to to, uh, get any more going and then the whole thing just dies. So those are things to look at. Um, In the show notes, I'll link to my troubleshooting bow drill article. I will also, um, I'll link through to my bow drill island, video as well that some of you will have seen and uh, if you if you go through to that link you will be able to get access to that bow drill island video where i am on an island in uh, ontario in canada i canoe to the island i get everything that i need to bow drill on the island and do a bow drill set and make fire on the island and that will give you some pointers as well but i think have a look at the troubleshooting article first because basically it goes through things that you could be doing wrong and things that you can rectify but in the context of the photo that you've sent to me size of the wedge what you're catching it on get it up off the ground let it consolidate make sure you've got enough material all right chris good question and i'm happy to answer those questions i know we've talked about bow quite a lot but it's something that people really do want to get a get a mastery of and get a handle on and get consistent with and i'm happy to help people with that and drilling down into different areas and troubleshooting for people hopefully that helps others as well particularly when you send me photographs like this um, that's very very helpful for for everyone so thank you chris last question for this episode dehydrating meals and this is from hicks and Hick, uh, via twitter hicks asked Hi Paul. Wondered if you've ever dehydrated meals yourself. I I cook mean curries etc and thought it would be a good plan. Well Hicks. Yes, I have dehydrated food and I think you have to experiment with what works. Some things work much better than others. Some vegetables dehydrate much better than others um so things like sweet potato work very well onions work quite well other things don't work so well in a home dehydrator you just have to experiment you have to experiment with the size you cut things into as well if if you're dehydrating things like that in terms of dehydrating sources um yes it can work but again you've got to experiment um you know dehydrating things like bolognese sauces seems to work quite well I've never dehydrated a curry so I don't know I I guess it might depend on the fat content how dry you can get it Um, a lot of good curries tend to have quite a lot of fat in them like a lot of oil Um, if you're doing it in that sense maybe it might be hard to do I don't know just experiment with it but I think it's a good idea Um, certainly worth trying and I would be interested to hear your uh, your experiences with that if you go down that route dehydrating meat as well is also a possibility dehydrate making your own jerky that's something that's well worth doing so um, i think you could probably dehydrate enough components of meals to make the meals you want to make even if you can't dehydrate them in and of themselves so it's worth experimenting with dehydrating a sauce it's certainly worth dehydrating um, experimenting with dehydrating some of the ingredients as well and um that's that's what i'd recommend it's it, it definitely worth doing but in the case of a curry don't know <laughs> right well that brings us to the end of episode 31 good to be back good to be doing another episode it's been a while um, i've missed doing them um, i've been very busy with other things as i say and um, lots of exciting stuff going on um if i could ask those of you who are not subscribers to my main podcast the paul kirtley podcast it's quite interesting i met quite a lot of people at the bushcraft show at the end of may who listened to this show the ask paul kirtley show they really like it but they weren't aware of my other podcast which was actually my first podcast which is more of a long form interview um style of podcast where i usually get another outdoor expert or outdoor person or person who has expertise in a particular area related to bushcraft survival or outdoor life and have a discussion with them about their experiences, about their area of expertise, about their research or or whatever it is that's relevant. And I think while it's not as focused as this show in terms of question, particular problem, Answer. Um, What it does give you is a huge amount of context and you're learning from other people's experience. Okay, it's not hardcore bushcraft application in a lot of cases, but it's people who are going to wild places, it's people who are making um, adventurous journeys, it's people who are interested in. survival psychology uh, people who are interested in anthropology and how hunter gatherers live and lots and lots of things which sit around the core hard skills of bushcraft and survival and that context is massively massively valuable and so please go across to my podcast the paul kirtley podcast and you can go to my blog and just click on the main navigation at the top where it says podcast right next to where it says ask paul kirtley click on where it says podcast that is the paul kirtley podcast and then if you could subscribe via the method that suits you best whether that's itunes the apple podcast app stitcher um, via the rss feed on my blog um, straight into some other podcasting app or you can download each episode onto your local device from my blog Um, that would be much appreciated because i've had some really good guests on there and i've got some more really good guests in the pipeline so um check that out i i feel like it deserves to be a little bit more widely spread that one um it's one of i I, even though i say so myself i'm going to sound slightly arrogant here i think it's one of the best if not the best outdoor um expertise podcasts out there in terms of the quality of guests that i have on there so please have a look at that have a listen um certainly helps on long journeys because they tend to be 90 uh, minutes plus conversations with these people. As I say, most recently I had Al Humphreys, before that I had Lisa Fenton, I've had Mark Couch, I've had Ray Goodwin, um, etc. etc. Just go and check it out. It's really, really good. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And I will see you on episode 32. Take care. Just before you go, one last piece for you audio podcast listeners. In the video form of this podcast, of this Ask Paul Curtley episode, there's a couple of little things for you to enjoy if you want to go over and watch the video. First off, there is a sneak preview of some of the blood vein footage that I talked about around the lightning storms, and that's kind of fun to have a look at. It's a little Easter egg around the 15 minute mark in the video. Also, at the end of the video, there are a couple of bloopers in a little blooper reel. They're quite fun to have a look at as well. So if you don't watch the videos, have a look, see those bits. They add an extra little dimension to what you've just listened to. That brings us to the end of another episode of Ask Paul Kirtley. Thanks for listening and speak to you soon. Bye.